Now please turn in your Bibles to Acts 6, to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6, where we'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7 of the Acts of the Apostles, 1 through 7, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summed the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Although this is a sermon on the occasion of a deacon being ordained, our own Thomas Wood, this book, Acts, is not first about deacons. It is about Christ Jesus, our Lord, the great deacon, and his gospel going out through his witnesses. Jesus himself tells us this, he says in Acts 1, verses 8 through 9. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, apostles, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus then ascends into heaven and leaves the, this mission of witness to all Jews and all Gentiles, to the apostles. They do as Jesus promised. They receive the Holy Spirit and the power from him on Pente- at the day of Pentecost, on Acts 2. And so the apostles work, and their apostolic work has now begun. They are to complete Jesus' mission, to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This they accomplish in Acts. They complete their mission and in Acts and in their lives. They witness in Jerusalem, that is the chief city of the Jews. They witness to Judea, the chief tribe of the Jews. And they witness to Samaria, the chief half-Jews. And they witness to the ends of the earth, that is, to the chief city of the known Gentile world, to Rome itself. All this happens within Acts. And then it continues to expand in the life of the apostles. All this is to say Acts is the record of Jesus fulfilling his promise, especially his promise in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And he builds that church, Ephesians 2.20, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Yes, Acts shows as well that Jesus is building his church, but that he does this through means. 
Jesus did not stay on earth. He, in fact, ascended, but ascended into heaven and left us officers to do his will. The acts of the apostles, his officers, were truly acts of God, when they did not sin, at least. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, speaking of the events of Acts in this way. When Jesus ascended, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and listen to this, for the building up of the body of Jesus Christ, the church. Christ is building up his church in Acts and now, and he is doing it through the equipping that the officers give, the officers of the church. But there's a problem in the church as we enter into the context of Acts 6. Acts 2 through 5 shows the absolute miraculous rise of the church from a mere 120 people in Acts 1 to multiple thousands. Acts 2 is Pentecost, where the work of the Holy Spirit, more limited in the Old Testament, now shows his power in a mighty rush of activity. And Peter proclaims the gospel, and about 3,000 souls come into the church all at once. This influx would cause problems in even the best of churches, let alone a fledgling church of 120 people. But it's a good problem to have. But it is a problem. What do we do with these people? And Acts 6 especially shows the question, what do we do with these people who are in need in the congregation? Here, as we enter into our text in earnest, the first part of God's way of mercy that is, how to provide for the people in need, is order. So let's first speak of the mercy of order. After all that blessing, we start Acts 6 with disorder, however, and disunity. Verse 1 says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is the Greeks, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We see ourselves in this disorder and this context far too much. Although the church is a holy building of God, like the Jews of the Old Testament, we make it filthy with our sin and our disorder and our disunity. But that is, up until this point, the church was living in a very simple way, one of love, one without much order, but love, and had the order of love, at least for a while. They would learn the value of order the hard way, as most churches do, who not heed the book of Acts, Acts 2.45 shows us what their order was like, the first order. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, to any who had need. It's hard not to be convicted by these words, I think. We Presbyterians indeed love order, but God wants the heart, not order itself. Order is a way of channeling and protecting the heart, not creating a heart that's pleasing to God. Let us not idolize order in itself and use it to keep us from doing what is good by that order, but use order for good. Use order to channel what is good, especially to do those works we did at first. But the early church had this heart of generosity and love. However, it seems that there was a problem of prejudice among them. I say it seems like there was a problem of prejudice because the text only says a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There's no specifics here on what that was like, what the extent of the neglect was. That will remain very mysterious to us. However, it was apparently enough of a problem 
that a controversy arose in the church, a controversy that arose up to the apostles themselves. Among this general uncomfortable disunity and disorder, let us now look at the glorious order of the early church that the Holy Spirit brought about through this controversy, something that every Christian should look at and marvel. Because not only is it so wise here, but so, and I speak this anachronistically, it's so Presbyterian. This is not the chaos that people tell us the early church had. It is orderly in the extreme. This is God's way of mercy, the mercy of order. See how much process is in this chapter. At least eight things happen. If you want, follow along in your Bible as well and place numbers near them. It's okay. You can write in your Bibles. It's a good thing. Place numbers near them. And it will help you in the overview of the story of God's faithfulness and order. First, in verse 1, a complaint is brought up by the Jerusalem church congregation. Second, this is assumed in verse 2, all 12 of the apostles convened a council to discuss and address this complaint. Third, also assumed in verse 2, they decided on a course of action among themselves, not asking the congregation's opinion necessarily, nor ruled by one apostle over another. As the Roman Catholics might say, they ruled and decided together, equally. It is here and many other places that Presbyterians see the model for elders of equal rank among themselves. Notice, not one apostle speaks, but all of them speak together as a unit. Fourth, this is verse 2, they summon all the disciples, a power under their jurisdiction like the elders here at Christ's covenant, calling a congregational meeting. Fifth, verse 3, they call the disciples in Jerusalem, the whole congregation, and charge them with a duty. That is, pick out from among you seven men full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Please understand the importance of this fact. The apostles could have selected, they had the power, these men themselves. They could have appointed them in a way that Episcopalians seem to do, but they, good Presbyterians, left it up to the church to select. This is the right of every church congregation, not to have their officers appointed to them, but selected by themselves. In selecting Thomas Wood as deacon, it was a decision of the members to put him forward, and then finally to vote upon him. You have this right, brothers and sisters, as we see here in Acts 6. If there are men with the qualifications, then bring them forward to the elders as candidates. Elders and apostles didn't elect deacons. Congregations did and do. Sixth, this is in verses 5 and 6, the first part of 6. The congregation elects seven men by themselves and presents them before the apostles. Seventh, which is verse 3, coming to fruition. The apostles appoint, literally set in place, these seven men chosen by the congregation, reserving for themselves a vote of approval or disapproval to their selection. This is where we are with Thomas Wood. He is selected, approved, and appointed, but he only lacks this eighth thing, the laying on of hands. Finally, eighth in verse six, we have the laying on of hands. The apostles pray over and ordain these seven men for ministry. That is, they, an ordination is the laying on of hands. It's helpful to do this because the church has never been given a manual of church order that is from God himself in the way that we have as our, the OPC Church of Order. 
and processes by God, like we're given manuals for some of our appliances, which, if we're honest, we throw away immediately anyway. What God has given to us is the book of Acts. Acts isn't a manual. However, Acts is a roadmap. Our first stop in how to organize and God didn't arbitrarily give us random stories. He gave us the principles of our church organization in Acts, and we ought to praise God for this because it's so wise and so merciful indeed for the purpose of mercy, as we see here in Acts 6. Let's praise God for this order. We don't often recognize it, but this order is in place for the protection of the weak and not for litigation and slander and harm. No, this complaint by the Hellenists, whether justified or not, gave the church an opportunity for mercy and to alleviate the suffering around them, to be more faithful with their resources, and to reunify the church that seemed to be separating. The widows were provided for and protected, and the Hellenists and the Jews were united in fellowship because of the order and the organization that we see here. This is the mercy of order. Today, you even now can send a complaint in the Presbyterian Church, just like these people did 2,000 years ago, to get a problem addressed by the Presbytery. Let us not hate the order that God has given us and rejoice at it, but always know its true purpose for mercy. And therefore, let us rejoice at the order of deacon that he has given us, which starts us starts in this chapter. This is the beginning of the order of deacon. So let's go to deacons, the order of mercy. Let us speak of the order of mercy, second, those deacons. Apostles say in verses 2 through 4, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And all of this is a basic general description of the work of a deacon. But also, might I add quickly, the office of elder as well. As the apostle is now in office no longer in use or even in need, as all of God's special revelation has ceased until a second coming of Christ, the elders take up these two main pastoral duties. That is, first, preaching the word of God. And again, in verse 4, we see preaching the word, the ministry of the word, and prayer. That is not the work, uh, is that not the work of a teaching elder? In short, Half of his duty is prayer. To the elders in this room, I might convict all of us and convict them especially. Are you praying? Are you the chief prayer? But as this text is especially for those who have the duty of preaching and prayer and are so busy in the singular work, that deacons were instituted. This is especially for the teaching elder, the paid teaching elder. If you are not praying... And you are not doing half your ministry. And you are unlike the pattern of the apostles and the pattern set for pastors from the very beginning. We must not only teach. We must have half of our job be prayer as well. Or we'll have only done half our jobs. And even if academically done weekly, we must be better and pray for our people. And it was to free themselves up to prayer and preaching that the apostles instituted deacons. This shows us not only how time-consuming the work of elders are, not only how important this work, these two works are, but especially how important the work of deacons is as well. That is, hear this, deacon. The first officer of the New Testament order who did your work 
was the apostles themselves. The first people, the first deacons were the apostles, at least in office. Your works came from their work and the work they thought necessary for the church, but could not do without drawing themselves away from God's primary calling for the apostles. The diaconate is far from a low office. It is a high and esteemed office, which came from the great cares of the, and duties of the apostles themselves. It was not because the work was unimportant that they created a whole new office to do the work that they were doing. No, it's very important work. The work is called serving tables, as we see in verse 2. Let's go to that. That is the general work of the deacons. That's serving. And we see this in three areas, especially. In serving, first, in serving the destitute, which is really what this is mostly about here. The word used in Acts 6.2 as to serve tables is where we get our word deacon. It's diakonos, or in this place it's the infinitive verb. For nerds, it's diakonane. It's a common word, and the word used to describe angels, in fact, ministering to Jesus after his temptation in the wilderness was over. Most likely, this refers, this word here refers to the money tables that those who gave their possessions went to in the free offering of their donations, and where the poor went as well for help. There was somebody there, a representative of the church. Once, that was the apostles, and now it's deacons. This work is especially toward those who are destitute and poor. It's work of offering yourself, your time, and your possessions, and to the benefit of one another. As we see through the subject of controversy here, the Greek widows and their provision. As 1 Timothy 5 makes clear, as we heard even uh, this morning uh, in Sunday school, makes clear, widows refer to the most destitute of society, the most destitute of the church of Christ. This shows us the primary focus of the duties of a deacon. The most in need of the congregation take precedent. Christians give without expecting anything in return, and this is part of it. Christians provide for those who, although they desire to provide for themselves, these destitute people, cannot provide for themselves or pay us back. Why? Because Christ did this for us first. Christ did this for us. Christ did this for us, and we are made in the eternal dignity of the image of God. He sacrificed for us, and so we sacrifice for others. This is the work of the deacon. The provision of the destitute is our theology with arms and legs. And on that note, legs and arms can serve. It need not simply be money that is given. Money is as a sacrifice of praise to our God, and it's commanded by him, not because he needs it himself, but Yes, to keep us from the love of money, but also to provide for his own body whom he loves and the destitute. So let us cheerfully give. The deacons are not IRS agents. They are servants. Our gifts are not mortgage payments or extracted as direct deposits. They are for service. Are you giving? And if you are, are you giving with the heart of the early church? And the heart of Christ who cheerfully gave even his own self and continues to do, even for the wretched, for the destitute. It is to the destitute that the deacons are especially to serve. But they also serve other, one other part of the congregation. Of course, I might say they also 
protect and serve the elders in their duties in the preaching and teaching and prayer, as we've said before, but they also serve the congregation generally. Deacons protect and serve the church in their finances. This means at least two things. First, that the deacons are over the temporal property of the church and protect the contributions that the church has made. They do this not only by protecting it from being stolen, but by being wise and prayerful in the distribution, as the qualifications even show. It is not, and I love the words of John Knox's liturgy here, having ever a diligent care the charity of godly men, be not wasted upon loiterers and idle vagabonds. This is part of the work of a deacon, protecting and serving the church in their finances. But second, not only do they protect the finances by being wise in who they give it to and protecting the the things like the church building as custodians, but much more than custodians, they also are called to, second, help those who have squandered their money in the church, those who are loiterers and vagabonds in the church, teaching them how to use their money correctly. So they are to be restored to the congregation. Additionally, deacons are not to be passive in this work. They are to be wise so that they can do this work, so that people in need find them, yes, but they find them out as well. They are to be active in their service, talking to the congregation and finding their needs. This is inherent in the qualifications the apostles give. So this Go to those qualifications now. That is of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. We see this in verse 3. It is these people who are to be office bearers, deacons. Many people, including people like the woman Phoebe in Romans 16.1, are called diakonos of the church. Or, as the ESV rightly translated it there, a servant of the church. Phoebe, as a woman, cannot have had the office of deacon. As we see, because these are all called men, seven men is part of the the qualification. But she is a servant of the church. There are those called to the office, and there are those who do the actions of the office. That is, there are those in the church who have the authority and the duty to do their actions of mercy. And that authority is through either the formal office of deacon or elder, or the office of, or rather, formal office of deacon or elder, those two. And there are others, like Phoebe. There are those in the church who can do similar works as the officers, but have no authority. It's easy to understand by asking and answering one question. Someone might say, since we have officers, doesn't that mean I don't have to pray or serve other people? Because that's the job of the officers, right? No. Everyone, women and men, Officers and communicant members, everyone has a gift that the Lord has given them. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11 tells us this, that those gifts are to be used to diakonos, to serve each other or serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God in us. All of us have this grace in us to serve. Phoebe is a good example. She served through her great wealth and her hospitality. She gave out of the abundance of her gifts, and so she is called a servant of the church. Yet she is not to have the office of deacon, because Acts 6.3 says, among other places, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you men. These deacons, these officers, have the right and authority to organize the congregation under the elders' oversight. Servants of the church don't. Those who simply have 
the duty and not the authority of diakonos, although they can work to that end with the deacons who have authority. Everyone is a servant in the church, but there are only certain men with gifts of service and wisdom that are to serve as servants with the authority, the authoritative office of deacon, and they are to be like Jesus Christ. Jesus, third, the accomplisher and model of, of mercy, Christ Jesus. He is mercy and he is our deacon. The word here again used for deacon, diakonos, is not just used for mere humans or for officers merely. First of all, more importantly, it is used to describe the God-man, Jesus Christ. The work of deacons is a reflection from the model of Jesus Christ himself and his work. As we see in Matthew 20, 28, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, diakonos, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The diaconate is a visible sign of Jesus Christ in the world, leading us to the mercy in this time of mercy that God has brought about. The deacons are leaders in mercy. Why? Because the deacons are from God's own heart for the poor and the destitute. We know this from our very own passage. Acts 6.3 tells us that deacons are to be full of the Spirit, This is the Holy Spirit, but especially we know that is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, says Romans 8 and other places. That is, the Holy Spirit who is sent by Christ to do his work and to apply his work of mercy and grace in the world. That is what Pentecost is and was. Jesus sent the Spirit to fill us with a greater blessing and gift in this world by filling us with Christ's Spirit, the Spirit of mercy and grace. God's mercy is his pity and long-suffering patience towards sinners who are in misery because of their sin. They may deserve their suffering, but God's love is so great that his love is not only pity towards those who don't deserve their misery, but it extends even to those who deserve their misery. Such is his mercy to vile sinners such as you and I. Who are we but this, brothers and sisters? Romans 9.23 tells us we are vessels of God's mercy, wretched sinners all, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. We are the people of the deacon, Christ Jesus, the people of God's mercy. Deacons exist because of our deacon, Jesus Christ, for God has consigned all to disobedience. Why? That he may have mercy upon all. The work of the deacons are a result of the work of Christ. Hear these famous words of Christ's work in Ephesians 2 and notice one word if you have not noticed this before. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And just as we are not to stop at temporal mercy through time and love and possessions to others, Christ in his ministry did not stop at healing and throwing out demons in his earthly ministry. He preached the gospel of repentance and faith, His gospel was not mercy through temporal riches, but giving eternal riches, even his own self for our eternal riches. Hear 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, about the purpose of Christ's mercy ministry. 
Hear this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Praise God, brothers and sisters. Christ's work gives a living hope, not merely a temporal hope, one that does not die with us. Praise God and hear this mystery. God humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, and served to the extent of dying on the cursed death of the cross. But, brothers and sisters, that he may give us eternal blessings is because he did not stay dead on the cross. He served us and continues to serve us as the resurrected Lord, deacon. He is our deacon. Deacons and Christians, look to Christ for our model and repent of our sin. The point of mercy ministry is life and life in Christ. He provides temporally, but principally he provided himself as our deacon, his body and his blood. Not merely temporal needs, brothers and sisters, but eternal and perfectly done. And we are made partakers of this by faith in him. Not that we might receive money, but our deacon, Christ Jesus. And this is the work of the deacon and the work of all of us, to be like Christ, our deacon. Let us go to him in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you. That although being found in the form of God, and indeed God, you came down and a humble servant were found as a servant. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us and served us in such incredible ways with such incredible gifts, undefiled, unfading gifts, that is, yourself and your life. We thank you, Lord, that you did not simply give us the gift of your death, but what's far more, your resurrection. And even now, you intercede for us. You pray for us. Lord, as our deacon, we thank you. And as the first deacon, the one from all eternity who set to serve his people, we thank you, Lord. We are not worthy. We have never been worthy. We pray, Lord, that as we see people around us who also are not worthy, that we would serve them in the love that you have shown us, the mercy of those in their destitute positions, that you would use our funds, that you would use our deacons in the office of deacon that you have instituted on earth for these works, that we would use them well, that we would be hands and feet of you, that we would be merciful people, finding opportunities for mercy and doing them as you have given us such great funds for this, Lord. You have given us ways of life that we might provide for the people around us, the destitute. Lord, show us how to be servants. And Lord, we pray that you might be with our deacons, that they would lead us in these things. And Lord, we pray above all else that you would lead us to Christ, that we would have greater faith, that we would have greater reverence for him and follow after him all our days. We love you, Lord, and praise you. And we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.